Welcome to the Hallowed Halls. I'm Danielle, the Armchair Scholar, and this is my guide to the strange and unusual things that capture the imagination, that make your skin crawl, and that haunt you long after you've walked out of the movie or put down the book. Let's take a journey through film, television, books, and the works of actual scholars to get a better look at the tropes, legends, lore, and mythologies that make up these weird worlds and their inhabitants. Thank you to all of you who are joining me again. Last time around, we got our scholarship on as a way to introduce the podcast, and I hope it gave you a little taste of what to expect here. As we move on, however, I want to get into a more colorful range of topics. Miskatonic was a good starting point to look at the idea of academia from the creepy side of life and the less than stellar sides of Lovecraft. But from here on out, I want to really do some deep dives on some of the figures and elements of lore and legend that I find most fascinating in popular culture, particularly when those things we see have been popping up again and again throughout history. Sometimes we take the more familiar tropes or figures for granted because we see them so often. We assume that they are a recent fad, set to drift off soon and never to be seen again. In the case of this month's episodes, you might be surprised at the history of a certain figure that has been coming up a lot recently. Whether it finds its way into freak shows, sewers, or insane asylums, this is an exaggerated vase that we've been seeing a lot of through the decades. And today, I'm going to be your guide to the weird world of clowns. As mentioned, it seems like clowns are everywhere these days, largely owing to the juggernaut that was the newest remakes of the movie It. Despite the fact that Pennywise has been a household name in horror for decades now, he isn't the only death clown we've seen, nor is he really the first. The idea of the clown as a subversive figure is almost as old as the idea of the clown itself. Far removed from a family-friendly figure that trips over his big shoes or shells burgers, the clown was someone who took delight in mocking the sacred and the untouchable subjects of the time, usually doing so in ways that would mean certain death if they were anyone else. Their humor was exaggerated and coarse, and their mask was their protection from the wrath of a monarch or the public as they decimated the things that society held dear. This is getting a little ahead of ourselves here, so why don't we start with a definition and then a little bit of history. A definition might seem a bit silly to start, as most people feel they know what a clown is supposed to look like, but getting down to what a clown actually is, and where the borders of what is and is not a clown, are not always particularly helpful. If we take the Wikipedia definition, for example, according to that site, a clown is a comic performer who employs slapstick or similar types of physical comedy, with a note about how it's performed in mime style, without really unpacking what that last part means. The article, however, goes on to detail why this scant definition lacking any physical characteristics is somewhat necessary, especially when we consider the long list of different varieties of figures that all fit into the clown car. Yes, that's a bad joke. No, I'm not taking it back. 
While the article states that for most people, at least in North America, the archetype of the clown is seen as the auguste, or red clown, as seen from the circus, it should be noted that this is a bit too simplistic. So what is a clown, really? What kind of defining characteristics can we point to that allow us to identify this figure as a clown? The truth is that there are many different varieties of clowns throughout history and throughout the world. In different cultures, these figures in society may have had a similar job, but they wouldn't always perform it in the same way. Nor would they always look the same. And this is where one of our first pitfalls lies. In our discussion, we have to ask ourselves if what a clown looks like really matters. Popular media has presented us with a very specific image over the years. While certain elements might shift or change, or might even disappear altogether, we recognize the face of a clown as defined through its look. We see the red nose, we see the big painted smile, we see the costume, and we're content to call this a clown. But is it still a clown if it doesn't act like one? This might be more important than you believe. And this gets even more complicated as we work our way back through history. The further back we go, the more we're going to see that definition get fuzzy. Without getting ahead of ourselves, for the moment, we can start with the basis that most of us have a token understanding of what a clown looks like, assuming we're going with the modern North American image that we've been seeing for the better part of almost 70 years. That said, clowning is a hell of a lot older than this, and reaches much further back, right into ancient Egyptian, Chinese, Greek, and Roman history, and other places you might not expect. While there are no physical descriptions of what these ancient clowns looked like, their role in society was something we're all pretty familiar with. In fact, if you look at this archetypal figure in all these different cultures, their function to their community is similar regardless of whether they're found in indigenous, Egyptian, Chinese, or European societies. These ancient clowns were people who played the role of the fool to elicit a reaction from the crowd and call attention to things that they could make fun of. In some cases, these clowns were considered sacred, and the role could only be assumed by very specific people in the community. In other cases, this role was meant to be an entertainer, but in being funny, they were also the only ones allowed to speak for those with no voice. These figures were the only ones in a community who can openly and unapologetically mock those things that are sacred, usually drawing attention to those topics that frightened or exposed the worst parts of those around them. According to an article by Fiona MacDonald for BBC Culture, the Roman precursor to the modern figure of the clown, the jester, was someone who would attend funerals as a funny man. Apparently, the role of this person was to make fun of the recently deceased, imitating them and cracking jokes about the dead and the funeral itself. The article goes on to detail how this was not unlike the role of the jesters of medieval Europe, wherein the funny man of the courts could comment and joke about anything he wanted, and everyone, including royalty, was fair game. Author of Bad Clowns, Benjamin Radford, was quoted in the article as saying that these jesters could make fun of a king's weight or how young his concubines were, and not be put to death for it because of the clown's role as a truth-sayer. 
According to the Smithsonian, the European clowns weren't the only ones who got to laugh at the higher-ups. In an article by Linda Rodriguez McRobbie, the author tells us of the ancient clown of Imperial China, Yitzi, who was, according to legend, the only guy who could poke holes in Emperor Qin Shi Huang's plan to paint the Great Wall of China. Another important example in history comes from the Lakota people in the form of the Heoka, which is a sacred clown. This is a very important role within the culture as it acts as a contrarian, but there's more to the mockery than simply to tease or disturb the peace. According to the Wikipedia article on the figure, the Heoka uses extreme behaviors to mirror others and forcing them to examine their own doubts, fears, hatreds, and weaknesses. They provoke laughter in distressing situations of despair and provoke fear and chaos when people feel complacent and overly secure to keep them from taking themselves too seriously or believing they are more powerful than they are. This quality of being the funny man or the one out of step with the rest of the world is a very important element for our definition of what a clown is. Their behavior is just as crucial a component to what makes them an enduring figure as their look, possibly even more so. This does make us wonder, however, who then would qualify as being a clown? After all, Ronald McDonald isn't out there making light of people who've died, and your average birthday clown isn't going to start telling kids that they're one day closer to death now. I don't think anyone would argue that they aren't clowns, but they're partaking in the more wholesome activity of amusing children for the most part. The modern understanding of a clown and its role can likely be traced back to television clowns, such as Clarabelle from the Howdy Doody Show, or big-name children's entertainers like Bozo, both of whom came to popular culture in the 1940s. Because these particular clowns became the face for the art for a while, it is popularly believed that this form of entertainment was only meant for or associated with children. In recent years, there has been public outcry from clowning groups who've become concerned that films and stunts involving evil versions of this figure are a dire threat to their livelihood. While their apprehension is understandable, it is worth noting that while clowns could and did delight audiences with their antics long before the 40s, as we've already seen, there's a darker and much less wholesome history to explore here. Andrew McConnell Stott, a professor known for his expertise in the history of dark clowns from the University of Buffalo, S-U-N-Y, confirms that the medieval fool was continually reminding us of our mortality, our animal nature, of how unreasonable and petty we can be. One of the most important ways that they accomplished this was by, as we've seen in history, defying death. Their role in the community was to say the things that no one else wanted to say or couldn't for fear of what would become of them. As long as they were playing the role of the funny man or the jester, they were protected as a figure that existed outside of the understood hierarchy. What set them apart more than anything else was their appearance. The BBC article also quotes philosophy professor David Livingston Smith in regards to how the juxtaposition between their behavior and their appearance can be attributed to our fear of clowns. Livingston Smith stated that 
Clowns are peculiar because they are meant to be delightful and amusing, but their exaggerated features and wild, rowdy behavior is usually anything but to many people. While we understand that most clowns that you will meet at birthday parties or the circus are intended to be delightful, their physical appearance, even if it's not intended to be, can still lean less on the whimsical side and far more towards the grotesque. Take, for instance, the style of comedy that they employ. The slapstick antics of these clowns can involve some minor things like getting pied in the face or tripping over large shoes, but it's hardly limited to that. Most clown performances are laden with physical punishments, from taking hard falls to getting hit with large, often comical objects, much of it making heavy demands to the body of those in the suit. But it's still played for laughs and shrugged off as the act transitions to the next pratfalls that the actors will have to take. Actor Bill Skarsgård described the role of Pennywise as being one of the most physically challenging roles he's ever had because of the movement and the actions that he had to take to become the infamous clown. And we have to remember that most of these clowns are performing under heavy, thick, and often uncomfortable paint and costumes. From far away, this might look like a colorful, clumsy buffoon, but when we really take the time to look at the way these clowns appear, that sense of the grotesque becomes even easier to see. To quote one of the masters of horror himself, Stephen King described his childhood memory of circus clowns as being 12 full-grown people. Their faces were dead white. Their mouths were red as if they were full of blood. They're all screaming. Their eyes are huge. What's not to like? In a 2005 interview with Conan O'Brien. King isn't wrong in his assessment, but he's also not the only one to notice how strange and somewhat obscene clown makeup is. Author Paul Bwissak in his book, The Semiotics of Clowns and Clowning, noted that the face of the clown is an anomalous case because it is an artifact that creates a split identity that escapes social control to some extent. It is neither a mask lacking expressive mobility, nor a cosmetic modification designed to beautify the appearance of a person as a live kind of Photoshop. A mockery of the human face, with its gross exaggerations and its colors. Clown makeup is not meant to present an attractive picture, but rather a distortion of what we are. That distortion can be read as taking a jab at the artifice and the fragile nature of beauty, the mockery of the inevitable changes that come with aging, or even a kind of death mask itself, even if it's none of these things. One thing that never changes, that creates this uncanny sense about the figure, is that the clown's smile remains regardless of what's happening around him. One of the first authors to draw attention to the clown's mask and what kind of horrors it might be hiding was Charles Dickens. In 1836, Dickens wrote the tale of the Pickwick Papers, a serialized novel featuring a clown character whose mask is hiding a gritty and terribly depressing world under the painted smile. Stott argues that this was likely the birthplace of the scary clown, and when we look a little more at the way that Dickens presented our down-and-out performer, it's not difficult to see why. As quoted in a Time magazine article by Olivia Waxman, Dickens describes a drunken clown wandering the alleys of London as having a bloated body and shrunken legs. 
their deformity enhanced a hundredfold by the fantastic dress. The glassy eyes contrasting fearfully with the thick white paint with which the face was besmeared. This grotesque image is unsettling just on its face, and something that can easily be imagined and drawn out to be made even worse, as it has been done numerous times in the decades to come. What makes it more unsettling is that while Dickens's clown was just a character, the person or people who inspired it were not. The name Joseph Grimaldi is an instrumental one in the history of clowning, specifically when it comes to circus clowns. Coming from a long line of performers, Grimaldi was a pioneer in many ways for the art, being the first to don the white face paint, popularizing the colorful outlandish dress style, and expanding the role of the clown in the shows that he was a part of. His name has become so synonymous with the world of clowns that for many years, they were referred to as Joey's. According to the Smithsonian article, his biography on the History of Circus website, and an archived article from The Guardian, there is an annual clown church service that is held in Grimaldi's honor. It is a testament to the man's incredible legacy and the talent that he is still being honored to this day. That said, his dedication, much like his clowning makeup, have a tendency to overshadow a very painful and often depressing life. The Smithsonian article even goes so far as to call it Dickensian, and it's not difficult to see why. It would have been bad enough to have the tragic backstory of an abusive father, the loss of his wife to childbirth, and the loss of his son to alcoholism when the boy couldn't live up to his father's achievements. Unfortunately for Grimaldi, it did manage to get worse. One of the things that Grimaldi was known for was a gift for physical comedy. A lot of the slapstick that we associate with clowns now came from his routines, doing falls and taking hits that made the audiences laugh, but took a huge toll on him. It was said that Grimaldi was very athletic, and in the beginning, could perform stunts that would amaze people, but the damage it caused eventually left him in a state of constant pain, and ultimately, he was left disabled from the many performances he gave. Beneath the makeup, this man was dogged by his very heavy losses in his personal life, and in the process of losing the battle with his own body, ended up drowning himself in alcohol to cope, not unlike his son. All of this would become invisible to the audience when the makeup went on, and he was able to hide his pain behind their applause. If audiences were to see him in the same manner that Dickens described his fictional clown, a figure who is said to have been inspired by either Grimaldi or his son, they would likely be far more disturbed than amused at the sight. The thing is, that considering the life that they led, and the kind of hardships they endured between the physical pain of performing, and the pressure of being in the public eye portraying this happy buffoon persona, it really is no wonder that the most celebrated clown in history and his son would end up going out of their way to hide their pain under their grease paint. That said, it wasn't always tears that a clown was hiding behind their painted faces. Over in France, Grimaldi had a contemporary who was hiding something a lot more sinister under his silent antics. There is another figure that history remembers for his incredible artistry in the world of pantomime, 
but whereas Grimaldi was a broken and very sad person underneath his happy makeup, this bohemian actor had a more violent streak behind his mime paint. Jean-Gaspard Debarau is still heralded as one of the most celebrated artists to transform the figure of Piero the Clown in French pantomime. One of the things that set Debarau apart in this discussion is that he is often referred to as a mime, specifically because he performed mute. According to Edward Nye, associate professor of French at Oxford University, Debarau's expressive muteness was all the more remarkable for being a choice, not an obligation, on account of the theater licensing laws changing to allow actors to speak on stage after July of 1830. There's a lot to this history, but the reason we're drawing attention to Debarau here is because of how he changed the very old Comicia dell'arte role of Piero, a clown which had previously been seen as a foolish character, constantly the butt of a joke as he pursued the love of another figure, Columbine. Debarau changed this character from being a buffoon that was doomed to lose the woman he sought to a much more cunning and even a bit of a devious figure. He also changed the look of the character into a very recognizable white-faced clown dressed in a white costume with black accents around the eyes, lips, and the black tight-fitting cap on the head. You can read many accounts by a number of different scholars and articles by many journalists about how he was changing the very name of the art of pantomime in France at the same time as Grimaldi was delighting audiences in England. What you won't find a lot of people chatting about in these articles, unless they are about scary clowns, is how this man clubbed a child to death in the street with his cane. Debarau was eventually acquitted of the crime, but there seems to be no indication that he wasn't guilty. It's generally accepted that the child he killed was a street kid who'd been heckling him, but in the course of searching for more information on his crime, there is really nothing to be told. Worse still, any information on him in any academic sources seems to concern itself only with the reforms that he introduced into the role of Piero. In some respects, this is not entirely unexpected. While his crime remains horrific, his victim had the misfortune of being poor, and that would already have been a strike against the boy. The fact that Debarau was also incredibly famous, recognizable even without his makeup, assured that there would be no one willing to hold him accountable for killing this kid. This is definitely a case where a celebrity got away with murder on account of public affection for him. But the thing to remember in this case was that it was not Debarau they loved. It was the mute clown that he embodied. In this instance, the clown figure was the one that made him above the law. To this point, we've seen that the clown has historically been able to cheat its way out of societal rules by being cast in this role, but most of these figures have been very specific to their cultures or have been elevated people who are chosen for a reason such as being an actor or a member of the king's court. How does the role of the clown play out when we're looking at normal people who are not world-famous actors or chosen members of a cultural group? To answer this question, we're going to fast forward to a much more recent time in history to show how even when they are anonymous performers in traveling circuses, the clown can still be a transgressive and transformative figure. In fact, 
as clowns. These normal people could become more than just the human body they were born in, complete with a kind of freedom from all its limitations that are placed on them outside of the makeup. In his book, Bad Clowns, author Benjamin Radford included a case study done by anthropologist Yoram Carmeli of a little person who was performing the role of a clown in British circuses in the 60s and 70s. Carmeli describes the little person's experiences with direct non-performance interactions with the public as especially difficult for him. While under grease paint and outlandish costumes, JS, as he is referred to in the text, was whatever the role called for him to be, a drunk bully, an angry policeman, or a pie thief. In this case, the little clown was able to transcend his station. Carmeli expanded on this, stating that in regards to the times that he was in those non-performance-based roles, the more JS was made to expose his real deformity, the more he was reduced as a human being to just being his small size. When we reflect on the history of these very real clown figures, we can see the power behind the makeup and the costumes. These are people, but when they are actively in the clown role, they can perform for us in a way that we wouldn't allow anyone else to. What's more, we encourage and celebrate their antics, even as we allow them to break what we as society have agreed upon or been forced to accept as normal and right behavior. It's not difficult to see how this can turn into something more sinister, and how easily this can translate to horror. Before we move on here, I'm going to talk for a very short moment about the real-life so-called killer clown. The first name that will likely always come to mind when talking about people associated with clowns who've committed real murders is going to be serial killer and rapist John Wayne Gacy. There are other people who've been linked to crimes, some of whom have used their clown persona to facilitate these acts. But Gacy is the only one whom we are aware of that performed as a clown for people in his real life while he was hiding real bodies in his house. I'm not going to cover him beyond this mention because this podcast is about lore and fictional tropes, and I don't want to blend these elements into the deaths of this man's victims. Gacy brutally raped, tortured, and murdered young men, many of them still teenagers, all of whom have families who are still alive and have to live with the aftermath of what it means to be reminded of what happened to their loved ones. While it's one thing to talk about art from Terrifier, or Pennywise, or even the Joker, these fictional clowns have a reign of terror that ends with the last page of the book, or they take off their makeup and turn back into actors after the camera stops. While I'm not suggesting that real-life events don't inspire fictional tropes, I don't want to divorce what this man did to real people, nor to diminish the very horrible deaths his young victims suffered for the sake of this discussion. There are true crime podcasts out there, if talking about real killer clowns is more your thing, and the people who write and research those topics are better equipped to talk about their crimes than I would be. There is also a chapter about this in the Benjamin Radford book, Bad Clowns, and that's linked in the show notes available on my website. With that, let's get back to our fictional themes, shall we? When looking at the history of this figure, it is a bit of a fair question to ask ourselves if clowns were ever supposed to be delightful at all. After all, the historical precedent shows us that their humor was never really wholesome or intended to be whimsical and their features were not just a bit grotesque from an aesthetic standpoint, 
but also from the way that they could mask their intentions. And in looking specifically at that mask, we can agree that it granted them an awful lot of power. Not only could it obscure what was really going on with the very real, and sometimes morally questionable human beneath, it also granted that person the ability to speak and behave with a kind of truth that would get other people arrested or killed. From here, we're going to look at some of the most prominent violent and killer clowns, and what has helped them to become a fixture of our memories and pop culture at large. If you do a search for evil clowns in fiction, you will find a wide variety of lists out there that include many different figures, some of which were only relevant for a short while, and others which have endured for a long time. For the sake of brevity and to focus on the ones that we know best, I'm going to highlight three of the clowns that have proven they are horrible enough to leave a lasting impression on us, and go over what it is that makes them unique, and how they've managed to change and adapt to continue to be part of that shifting pop culture narrative. Before we get to our more modern fiends, however, no discussion of violent clowns is going to be complete without a look at the prototype of the death-defying gesture of cruelty. Let's take a look at the first popular clown and figure to gain an applause for his purposeful, rotten antics, the deplorable Mr. Punch. It might be difficult for modern audiences to connect this figure with some of our other notable clowns, but that's also assuming that they even know who he is. Unless you're British, someone who has a keen interest in English culture, or you have a particular fascination with carnival antiquities, you might be drawing a blank on who this infamous puppet is. For the uninitiated, Mr. Punch is regarded as an iconic figure in Britain that, according to the British Government Department for Culture, Media, and Sport, ranks right up there with a cup of tea and the double-decker bus as the cultural signifier of the English. His 350th birthday in 2012 was celebrated with exhibitions, shows, parties, all to revere this crude, obnoxious, murderous character meant to amuse children. As a character, he is fairly basic and thoroughly horrible. Radford describes him as a red-capped, hook-nosed, gleeful, wife-abusing serial killer. And as a starting point, this is pretty accurate. What Punch brings to the table of our clown discussion is the integration of violence in the truths they tell, and how it can be used to shed light on some topics that are either too taboo in our modern age to be able to tackle any other way. We're going to get into that more when we talk about our actual clowns, but before we go much further, we should address why this character qualifies to be a part of our discussion in the first place. There's a lot to unpack with Mr. Punch, but the very brief background on this character leads us not to Britain, but to Italy, and specifically back to the Comigia dell'Arte. Like Piero before him, Punch began his life as a stock character, Pulcinella, a self-serving man who is constantly trying to climb the social ladder and seemingly immune to the consequences of his actions. According to the Wikipedia page, it states that Pulcinella is a dualistic character. He either plays dumb, though he's very much aware of his situation, or he acts as though he is the most intelligent and competent, despite being woefully ignorant. Here we can see his link to the clowns we've already seen in history. 
This contrarian element is a core part of his character, but there's more to Pulcinella that connects him to our coming clowns. The article continues explaining that his often accidental triumph is his normal. Another important characteristic of Pulcinella is that he fears nothing. Consequences are of no mind to him, as he will be victorious no matter what. Again, we're seeing the callback to how this character operates in the same manner as our past mimes, jesters, and early clowns. He's able to do anything and defy any kind of civilized or lawful action because he is above the punishments that would befall anyone else. More telling is how, according to Stephanie Hall in her article Punch and Judy in America, in Nabal's lore, he was not only a trickster figure, but also one who protected those at the mercy of power imbalances. Hall wrote that Pulcinella was a protector, especially of laborers and the poor. He is known as one who not only can con the devil, but mediate between the devil and the people. Of course, as tends to happen any time a character gets adapted to a new audience, it changes. Pulcinella came to England through a traveling show in the 1600s, and was so popular there, the character was adopted as a marionette, and eventually a hand puppet, and his name became Mr. Punch. From here, we see his narrative morph into something else. While his original stock character was simply a contrarian who was able to slip out of any difficulties, this new adaptation kept the self-serving part, but the emphasis had changed, and the violence was more pronounced. In the course of the old shows, the narrative would begin with Mr. Punch and his wife Judy, originally named Joan, engaging in antics mostly involving him beating her, or her beating him back, with a literal slapstick. The stick itself is a long-term holdover from his previous life as Pulcinella. Where it differs, however, is that while that figure was rather flexible, this puppet has a rather specific chain of events that he will follow. Punch is left with their baby, whom he then either beats to death with the stick or drops off the stage, essentially killing it. Judy, somewhat put out that he's casually murdered his own child, fights with him, and that also usually ends in her demise. From here, Punch is sought after by the police only to beat them as well, and the slapstick then gets used against a crocodile, the executioner, and even death or the devil. The basic framework of the show, especially these days, is mostly involving Punch, his interactions with Judy, and the eventual loss of the baby. From there, performers, often called professors, could add their own spin to the events and play around with how the action unfolded. The plays were originally intended for adults, but as the shows became more popular and performers were invited to family gatherings, the material had to adapt to fit the audience. Punch's antics have stayed more or less the same since the Victorian period, but the framework surrounding them has been left malleable, so that it could change when it needed to. According to veteran Punch and Judy puppeteer and historian, Mark Walker, in a lecture that was given at the Library of Congress, there was no initial narrative to these plays. But he does give the specific elements that are essential for this puppet show as we know it now. He identifies Joey the Clown, a slapstick, and audience participation as the three most important elements that make a Punch and Judy show. 
Again, the individual ingredients to any given show might vary, but the reason that these specific parts are so important to what these shows developed into was because they are directly linked to the British pantomimes that were a staple of English entertainment. The pantomimes, it should be noted, were also where Grimaldi gained his fame, and the addition of Joey to the cast of puppets is in his honor. We can see from the first two elements how Punch's show moved from its origin as that stock character, but where things get more interesting is that final element of audience participation. This is possibly the most important part of how this puppet fits into the greater picture of clowns and our fascination with the so-called bad ones. It also sets a precedent for how clowning could be taken out of the safety of the stage or the circus and leak their chaotic or even dangerous energy into a space where the audience could be affected by it, if only a little. The callbacks to the performer, who involves the crowd and adapts the material to fit the audience's reactions, create a new kind of intimacy that wouldn't have been entirely possible before. What's more, this show, unlike Grimaldi and Barrow's performances, was not allowing viewers to surrender themselves entirely. The world of the stage, or the pantomimes, or any other major performance, is meant to be consumed voyeuristically, demanding the audience let go of the real world and watch the one that the artists are building around them. Punch and Judy creates a world its own, but the viewer is never wholly absent from the experience. In fact, it was a world that closely resembled the real one, but with a few specific changes. Walker describes in his lecture how, during the Elizabethan period in England, Punch would ridicule people in high places, deflate the pompous, and to some people of the time, he was on their side. Walker describes the puppet, for all his murderous behavior, as a folk hero, citing how, in a period when capital punishment could be used against the poor for things like stealing bread, Punch was able to act as their fantasies of being able to outwit and ultimately escape the highest powers of the unfair laws, or even death. We're going to close our conversation on Mr. Punch by looking at how he managed to make the jump from his seat in merry old England to North American shores. This bit of history is particularly important because while Punch and Judy are not nearly as prolific here as they are in Britain, it's more telling about where these puppets ended up and what they became associated with. Now for the record, this is at best a glossing over of the full scope of their influence in American culture. Punch and Judy shows were at the height of popularity at one point throughout most of the English-speaking world and beyond. There's no way that I could do this puppet and its legacy justice, nor is this entirely worth exploring here for our discussion on clowns. If you are interested in learning more, there are resources listed for you in the show notes, and I very highly suggest you look up Mark Walker's work. Even if we can't cover it all, however, we are going to hit the highlights and focus our attention specifically on the one area that we know Punch and Judy made an impact. But to do this, we're going to have to fill in the gap of what happened when Mr. Punch made his leap across the big pond. The first recorded American show that historians can trace is in 1742 in Philadelphia. From there, the plays became popular and started spreading all throughout North America. By the 19th century, you could find a Punch and Judy show just about anywhere, and the places they were being performed was widely varied depending on who was running the show 
and what venues were available. That said, the puppet show found a comfortable home in circus sideshows, and one of the most notable performers was none other than world-famous magician Harry Houdini. This was not out of keeping in sideshows, as a lot of performers would make some money off of doing the puppet shows, and then would make more doing something else at the same time. According to Walker, veteran performers would either pass down their show tricks and puppet to a younger family member, or even take on an apprentice to carry on their methods of doing things all orally. This was also likely how the act was able to spread so widely back in the day, as there were no rules on who could perform, and it was less physically demanding than other roles in the circus would have been. Though there is a written account of how punch shows were performed in Britain from the 1800s, as we've already seen, these plays work best off of spontaneity and the creativity of the performer. This also allowed American audiences to develop their own elements into the narratives and make them unique. In recent years, Punch has fallen out of favor with American audiences, and has even had his show questioned in Britain, though he still remains a little too beloved there to be entirely cast off. When looking up where to see a Punch and Judy show here in North America, it may be a little hard, if not impossible, to find. Walker stated in 2018 that at that time, there might be about 50 performers in the United States, and there's almost no information on performers in Canada. We know that the shows were performed here based on the puppets carved in 1925 that are available to be seen through the Canadian History Museum in Gatineau, Quebec. At the time of researching, there's no current or regularly updated list of places that one can find a show should one want to see it. That is, except for Coney Island. As a figure, Punch has had a long and lasting history, his antics both vulgar and memorable. The fact that he has been relegated to more of an antiquity, or something that lurks about in places like the legendary Coney Island, is fairly telling of his role here in North America. He still speaks, but his audiences have to find him. The truths he tells, are things that are dressed up in a world that doesn't feel real. That doesn't make what he does or says less true, however. We've seen that Punch has the ability to get away with quite a lot in his shows, like the Clowns of History before. We've also seen that he's a character that can seemingly slip out of any kind of difficulty, even things that should mean certain death. The fact that this puppet carries on, even if it lurks on the fringes, shows that no matter how much we might question or even outright disagree with his bad behavior, there is and always has been a place for subversive jester figures in our society. Dickens may have highlighted their duality, but Punch made them something tangible in a world that is a little too close to our own. From him, there is a very small leap to be taken to the world of horror, and that is exactly where we are heading in the next episode. And with that, thank you to everyone who has joined me to let me be your guide. The Armchair Scholar was researched and written by Danielle Clausen. As always, any of the articles that I mentioned are linked in the show notes, and going forward, I will have them annotated for you on my website, so you can know a bit more about each article and what to expect. You can find that under the heading Litanies. Full transcripts for each episode will be available only on Patreon, starting at the $2 level. 
The next episode will be coming up in two weeks' time, so stay tuned for some truly gruesome and thought-provoking bad clowns to come. In the meantime, there are always additional resources that are included in the show notes, including lectures, videos, and other things that might have been mentioned or just might have been a part of my own research, but I didn't get a chance to mention. And with that, until next time, keep studying, and wherever possible, let curiosity be your guide.